Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. People age 65 and older make up 12% of the U.S. population, but account for 34% of all prescription medication use and 30% of all over-the-counter medication use. Research shows the average older adult takes four or more prescription drugs each day, and 39% take five or more prescriptions during that same period. My guests today are Dr. Kristen Zimmerman and Dr. Emily Perrin, both associate professors at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. They're going to talk about polypharmacy and the causes and risks of multiple prescriptions and over-the-counter medications for older adults. They're also going to talk about the importance of de-prescribing medications and the need for medication reviews to maximize the benefits of medicines and reduce the risks. So welcome, Kristen and Emily, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having us. All right. Well, Emily, let's start with you and uh, get kind of an overview here of, of this, what we were just talking about, what I was talking about in the introduction. As people age, what changes occur that might impact how their body handles and reacts to medications? That's a great question, Cheryl, and I think it's a good starting point. Um, we know that as individuals age, there are changes that occur uh, throughout the lifespan, and so we can see changes in terms of how our body absorbs medications, how it processes them, um, metabolizes them, and gets rid of them from the body. Um, so if you think about from the perspective of changes that we can see in terms of, of actual body systems, we see an increase in body fat, we see a decrease in body water, uh, decreased muscle mass over time, and that can influence the way that the body is going to absorb, take in, um, and process medications. And so as we see changes um, with those different you know, body, body systems, we can see changes in terms of how a medication gets through the body and actually impacts, uh, impacts the body and makes its, its effect. Um, we also see changes in kidney and liver function, which can be problematic uh, from the perspective of thinking about how we're dosing medications, how much we can give someone, how quickly we can expect it to get out of the body. Um, but also in terms of things like drug interactions. So if you end up with a drug that's sticking around longer than anticipated um, because it's not getting through the kidney and liver quite as quickly, um, then we're going to potentially have that drug sticking around for longer or at higher doses um, or potentially interacting with other medications um, in a more problematic way than might have been there um, maybe decades earlier. 
And as part of that response, Emily, I also want to know about side effects. You hear about that so often. And I was also wondering if aging-related changes that you are just talking about can also affect the risk of side effects amongst medications. And, and if so, can you give some examples of that? Sure. I think the what I would say is that there can certainly, so many things influence side effects and, and influence the experience that a person has with medications. Um, I'll say this, that folks can experience side effects um, with taking medications at normal doses and as prescribed, um, and then other folks will have potentially more profound effects than others that can't necessarily be explained by age alone. Um, but certainly, to your point, side effects can be um, worsened for a variety of reasons, including some of these age-related changes that we see in the body. Um, so again, that idea of if something's sticking around longer in the body, you're going to have more potential for there to be problems, for side effects to be worsened. Um, there are some examples, um, I'm thinking of some sleep aids that we have, um, like drugs in the same class as uh, uh, Xanax or Ativan. Um, so those benzodiazepine medications, which some folks will use for sleep um, or for anxiety or for a variety of other reasons, um, can cause problems in terms of having prolonged drowsiness or uh, sedation or unsteadiness that can occur. And those drugs will stick around longer in the body as someone ages, which can potentiate problems and, and kind of continue those side effects longer than they would have been ex expected or um, at, a, at a more significant level than might have been expected because it's, it's sticking around in the body longer than it would have 20 or 30 years ago. Um, the same that we see is true with um, alcohol. That's one that I oftentimes will use as a, as a comparator for people that we can drink a certain amount, let's say six beers at age 40, and that's going to yield a very different response than someone who's drinking six beers 40 years later, that sometimes we can see changes um, because of that decrease in, in body water. For example, we can see a higher um, blood alcohol content in the, in the body. And so it's the same kind of idea that the side effects or the effects of the alcohol are going to be more significant in someone who's older um, because they're processing alcohol differently and alcohol is a drug. And so I think that that comparison seems to, to trend nicely in terms of just hopefully helping to understand that that side effects, especially um, you know, from, from one decade to the next can look different, um, but also from one drug to the next. So some medications are going to be more affected by these, these age-related changes than others. And I suspect oftentimes when people get new drugs, they don't think about the side effects. Is side effects something or are side effects something that people kind of forget about, asking about? Absolutely. I think there's there's a variety of things that can be asked of a provider or of a pharmacist whenever um, you're first seeing uh, someone or you're first getting prescribed a medication. But the issue is that a lot of times you're you're focused on, you know, maybe there was a new diagnosis or maybe you're trying to figure out how to take the medication safely. And it's one of those questions that sometimes gets lost. And it's also something that on the side of the provider or the pharmacist, um, sometimes there may not, people may not have have time or feel like they have time to sufficiently explain, they may think that one person or the other is responsible for that. And so neither is actually doing that task. Um, it's also possible, you know, I think about from the perspective of a pharmacy, that if you don't realize that this is a new prescription at checkout, um, then the pharmacist may not be alerted to, to talk to the patient about what those side effects are. Um, and so I think it's something that if you know a bit about what to expect, it can be helpful. Um, but it's also something where you know, you do have to be cautious that not every side effect is going to be 
clearly delineated um, you know, by the provider. We can talk about the most common things or the most bothersome things, um, but there may be things that you see that aren't as common or aren't discussed. And so in those cases, certainly it's reasonable to call the provider and ask, is this normal? What should I be doing? Um, you know, or if, if side effects are particularly um, bothersome or persistent, so if they're severe or they're sticking around for a while, um, you absolutely want to call and just double check that things are are appropriate as they should be, um, or that you know there's not something that's more more sinister underlying the problems. But side effects can look different in everyone, and and that's oftentimes a challenge that you know new symptoms will occur or new problems will come up, and we don't always tie them into being a medication related problem. But that's usually as pharmacists, that's the first place we go. Um, drugs are kind of uh, guilty until proven innocent in some ways. Good points. Good points. The other one I wanted to ask you about, which I think everybody, whether it's older adults or even non-older adults, wonder about is taking expired medications or or maybe even ones that have outlived their usefulness. Is it likely that older adults might be taking expired medications and is there some negative um, impact of that happening? What, what can you tell us about that? Sure. That's a, that's a big one. And I think it's something, I mean, I was just in my first aid cabinet and I'm embarrassed about the number of expired things in there. Um, but I think it's, it's normal in some cases to have um, medications that have been kind of around. Um, I don't know how else to say that, but, you know, folks will sometimes have prescriptions that they forget about or they, they land in, you know, um, in a basket somewhere or they haven't been needed for a while. Um, some folks will inappropriately stop taking antibiotics before they've actually finished their course. And so they'll have antibiotics sticking around. And so those sorts of things, I think it's normal in some ways to, to have expired medications. Um, but I think, you know, the important thing is that when we're identifying these things, that we are getting rid of them, um, you know, and that we're not letting them be used by ourselves or others who are maybe in a rush and trying to find something and not realizing that the expiration date is on there. Um, I think generally speaking, what we're most worried about with, um, with expired meds oftentimes is the effectiveness of them, um, but safety does come into play in some cases. So I mentioned antibiotics, one that I think of um, in the class of, of tetracyclines, so medications like doxycycline, which folks can use for a variety of different reasons, um, those drugs can actually be really problematic if they're expired. They can cause significant problems. And, you know, that's one of maybe a small handful that's really going to be associated with, with severe risks. Um, but I think that it's, it's the sort of thing that from an example perspective, we need to be aware of the fact that, um, that there can be safety issues related to use of, of expired medications. Um, my recommendation is to get rid of medications um, when they're expired. Um, I, I don't leave prescription medications laying around and I don't recommend others do it as do it either. Um, if you're concerned about how to get rid of medications, there are drug take back days. Um, there are also ways that, you know, certainly if you go to your local pharmacy, they can tell you how to dispose of medications. And the FDA also has some recommendations for how to, how to, um, get rid of medications safely. Um, so I would look, you know, to those resources, if there are things that folks are looking for, but you know, to your other point with the medications that are no longer useful, um, that's really where I think we get into a lot of problems is that we, even if the expiration date isn't, is still good, or, you know, it's something that's not going to be super risky to take if it's expired. Um, it is still something that a lot of times for, for folks over time, um, their medications may not be safe anymore or may not be effective anymore. Um, and so we do want to make sure that, that, people aren't letting medications lay around that are potentially problematic for them. 
Um, so especially thinking about drugs like, you know, we, we, I said alcohol, but those benzodiazepine drugs that, that some folks will use as sleep aids. Um, there's a lot of those medications that the scales tip at a certain point where the risk of some of those medications can be greater than the benefit. And that's really where we're trying to avoid problems. Um, but because there's no magic tipping point, right, that at age 67, suddenly we have to stop taking, you know, XYZ drug, um, it makes it a lot harder to kind of pull some of those medications away from folks or to encourage them to, to get rid of them on their own um, because it can, because potentially they've become dependent on them or they feel like, you know, they've worked for so long, how can they not be working anymore for me? Um, but, you know, that's part of our job is to help folks understand what are the benefits and risks of taking these medications. We can't make those decisions for you, but we can certainly encourage you um, to make safe and, and healthy decisions for yourself. Well, good advice there as well. So, Kristen, I wanted to turn to you about numbers. You heard me uh, indicate in the intro about the average older adult, how many they take, and and as many as five or more. Is, is that pretty accurate? Is that kind of what you are also seeing uh, as far as the number of prescription medications that older adults take each day? Absolutely, Cheryl. You know, data from the Kaiser Family Foundation finds that nearly 9 in 10 adults over the age of 65 report that they're taking any prescription medication. And as you mentioned in your introduction, older adults comprise about a third of all prescription and a third of all over-the-counter medications and supplements. So what we see about when we think about rates of medication use over time, we see that those rates have risen steadily over the past decade or longer. So for example, at least one recent study found that the rate of using five or more medications per day has doubled from 2000 to 2012 alone. And I'm sure if we were to conduct the same assessment today, we'd see that continued increase or rise in the rate of medication use, and not just medication use in general, but use of multiple medications. So for example, we use that ear marker um, of five or more. And we see that the rates of medication use are greatest amongst those who reside in, let's say, a skilled nursing facility, like a nursing home or an assisted living facility, individuals who have frequent hospital visits or chronic diseases that require them to see their healthcare providers quite often. Um, we also see that folks who have some very specific medical conditions actually have some of the highest rates of medication prescribing. And we find this to be especially true in folks who have things like depression, hypertension, asthma, uh, folks who have arthritis, and who have a history of diabetes are some of the conditions that we know are earmarked or associated with some of the highest rates of medication use. So given what you're just describing, Kristen, what is considered polypharmacy? Is, is there an actual definition in terms of numbers? And then what are the risks of polypharmacy? Whatever you tell us is the actual definition for older adults. Sure. So we consider polypharmacy to really mean too many medications, right? That's the exact Latin derivation of the word poly and pharmacy. But on a deeper level, it's really quite difficult to define what polypharmacy is. Um, what we want to capture when we say polypharmacy is really use of medications that are maybe not indicated, more medications that are warranted or necessary for a specific patient to take. So not necessarily circling around a specific number, but more the characteristic of more than is necessary. 
the problem with the definition of more than may be necessary for a patient is that it makes it really difficult for researchers to study without a sort of specific defined standard number. And so in research, and in a lot of the statistics that we've already talked about today, um, we see a standoff, standard cutoff number of, let's say, five or more medications or 10 or more medications. And again, it's because researchers really need a standard, well-defined definition of what polypharmacy is, but not because there's anything particularly magical about that number or any other number. So when we you know, think about the risks of polypharmacy. And when we think about this idea of a number or a cutoff value, when we look in the literature, we see that often these risks are quantified by or associated with a specific number of medicines. So one of the risks of polypharmacy, for example, and, and Emily sort of touched upon this a little bit earlier, is a greater likelihood of side effects or what we call adverse drug reactions. And, you know, one report that I cite very often found that there is a fourfold greater likelihood of having side effects or bad reactions in individuals who are taking eight or more medications compared to those taking five or more medications. So right there, you're seeing this idea of in research, and when we cite statistics, right, these sort of numbers are coming into play. But again, you know, it's not necessarily that you're going from the threshold of seven medications to eight medications, and all of a sudden there's something magic that makes your risk increase. But we do start to see this linear relationship between the more medications somebody's taking, the greater the likelihood of having some of these side effects or, or sort of bad effects. Um, and these side effects or bad effects are also more likely to cause things like hospitalization, um, you know, a greater risk of what we call functional decline or the ability for somebody to carry out tasks that keep them living at home and independently. Um, more medication use is associated with increased rates of specific symptoms and syndromes, things like dizziness, incontinence cognitive impairment, and falls. So certainly the more medications folks take, you know, the more expensive they are as well, the more difficult or complex they are to take, and, you know, the more likely they are to have some of these sort of negative outcomes. And you just mentioned the magic word of, of dangerous falls. And of course, we just completed the month of of September, which was focused on prevention of falls. Is, is that a huge risk as a result of multiple medications? Yeah, it, the interplay between risk of falls and medications is somewhat complex. You know, naturally, we have a variety of bodily systems that help prevent us from falling when there's, you know, a change in our environment or when our body experiences a physical change. And some of these systems, you know, tell us where we physically are in space. Um, it governs, you know, our reaction time, how quickly we're going to react to those changes in environment, how quickly our muscles are going to react to counter a change, judgment about what's safe, how quickly our, you know, cardiovascular system can respond to changes in blood pressure or dehydration, for example. So all of these systems normally help us to avoid a fall. And some medications can interfere with these same exact systems, and it might make it more likely that we take a fall. So some examples uh, might include medications that can slow reaction times, that can slow down your muscle response time, can make your muscles more weak, impair things like sensation, 
slow or block, you know, blood pressure changes or heart rate responses over time so that your body's not able to compensate for those changes in the external environment or, um, you know, changes that the body itself might be experiencing. And so polypharmacy can enhance this risk when, you know, medications augment each other's effect, when medications interact with each other directly. And when we think about drug interactions, we think about, you know, one drug increasing or decreasing the concentration of another. But drugs can also interact directly with the systems that are responsible for regulating clearance. So I think oftentimes about the kidney, right? Um, and whether a medication is interfering with another's exit from our body and causing it to back up or build up. And that medication buildup or backup is interfering with these sort of fall prevention systems. So certainly the more medications an individual takes, the more likely they may be taking a medication that interferes with these sort of fall response systems or a medication that interacts with another medication or system, you know, causing this chain reaction of interfering with these sort of anti-fall systems in the body. So more medications, greater likelihood of falls. The next question, in addition to now too many drugs, is we need a bit of information, a lot of information actually, on over-the-counter medications. And so Emily, help us on that. Uh, Are older adults likely to take too many over-the-counter medications and supplements or multiple? I don't know how many, uh, how to define too many, but get us started here on on over-the-counter medications. I think what we see in terms of over-the-counter medications and supplements is at least from, from my experience over, over the past dozen or so years. Um, I think there's some ebbs and flows in terms of, of folks using OTC and supplement uh, medications. And what I would say is we oftentimes use terms interchangeably. And when we say drugs, we mean all of them. Uh, We mean prescription, we mean over-the-counter, we mean dietary supplements, even though those are sometimes defined differently by by your retailers or by um, FDA. And and note that the FDA piece is important to keep in mind, and we'll talk about that shortly. But um, I think what I would say is that we do see uh, significant use of OTCs, including dietary supplements by older adults. Um, and that's for a variety of different reasons. I think access is one big thing that you can walk into a store, you can find the thing that seems to fit with your symptoms and self-treat essentially. Um, there's also, you know, folks have become reliant over the years potentially on things like Tylenol and ibuprofen, medications that they've been using for pain, uh, for cough and cold. And in large part, you know, in, or in most cases, those things can continue to be used safely within reason um, but again, much like the, the scales can tip at a certain point with prescription medications, we see the same thing with over-the-counter medications. And so one of the examples I mentioned, ibuprofen, um, there are other drugs uh, like it, naproxen or Aleve would be the brand name of, of um, uh, the brand equivalent of, of naproxen. Um, and then ibuprofen, like I mentioned, Motrin. Um, but those medications, what I would say is that they can Um, potentially cause problems later on in life. And so for older adults specifically, um, we can see an increased risk of of bleeding. We can see an increased risk of um, kidney dysfunction. And so those issues can be certainly problematic for folks. And again, we can use them safely within reason, but for some folks, they're going to be really inappropriate to use um, or potentially um, 
just a safety issue from a, a drug interaction perspective. But if you don't have someone advising you and you're going straight from the label on the box, it can be harder to know those things. Um, same with dietary supplements. Um, a lot of those things, uh, ginseng, uh, ginkgo, your, a lot of your vitamins, they can, be, um, they can be potentially problematic. Folks look at them and think, well, it's natural. How bad can it be? Um, but you do have to look at the whole patient and look at what medication, what medications are taking, but also what medical problems are they are they experiencing? What um, non-prescription medications are they taking? Are they drinking alcohol? Um, you know, all of those different variables can factor in here. Um, and so we do want to make sure that, especially as folks, um, you know, and this can be true of anyone of any age, but the more medications that you're taking or the more medical problems that you have, the more concerning it is when you're you're self-treating. And so we do want to make sure that folks are communicating with their with their doctor and their pharmacist um, and other providers involved so that everyone's aware of what everyone else is prescribing, um, including what over-the-counter medications are being taken. Um, if you're putting it in your mouth, your provider should know about it in terms of even things like tea or um, you know, caffeinated beverages, protein shakes, all of those things can have, can have a role, um, but we don't oftentimes associate them because we didn't have to talk to someone um, with a license to, to get those medications. Um, but I think you know, the big challenge with some of these is that they are not regulated in the same way as prescription medications. So over-the-counter drugs and dietary supplements don't go through the same safety and efficacy um, requirements as prescription medications. And so really, you know, these drugs can, they have to prove safety to some degree, um, but efficacy isn't, it's really and truly, it's mostly on the manufacturer to communicate to FDA what the risks are and what the, the benefits are whereas FDA doesn't require that information in large part. Um, and so that's a really kind of significant thing to consider that it's not, these drugs are not going through the same um, safety and efficacy standard uh, regulations as prescription medications, and yet they're more accessible than prescription medications. So that can be really problematic. And especially from the perspective of understanding um, interactions and getting those things into, um, into a system when you're trying to do a drug interaction check, you know, sometimes these combination products have so many ingredients that we can't even, you know, we can't even identify them all. And we can't therefore get an accurate idea of what sorts of drug interactions someone might be experiencing. So much to know for older adults and their families. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. Uh, if you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Kristen Zimmerman and Dr. Emily Perrin associate professors at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. And we're talking about all aspects of medications today. This is an excellent discussion here. We also want you to know that you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. So we'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Welcome back. We are having an excellent and excellent conversation with 
Dr. Kristen Zimmerman and Dr. Emily Perrin with Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy. And now I'm going to turn to you, Kristen, to talk about the difference between brand name medicines uh, and generic brands. That is really something that a lot of people probably have to um, deal with now. And so I guess in that regard, why are brand name medicines more expensive than generic brands? And are the generics just as effective? Let's, Let's start there. Yeah, it's a great question, Cheryl, and one that my patients certainly come in asking about a lot. Uh, New brand name medications are often more expensive because they're the only one on the market until their specific patent is up. And during that time, being the only one on the market, that drug developer needs to recoup the costs of their drug development and fund the development of new drugs. And so that's when medications are likely to be brand name, expensive, or not covered by insurance or covered but under only certain conditions. Uh, But once that patent expires, more companies can make that medication as a generic medication and we see costs go down. Now, generic medications do need to meet specific requirements to be considered equivalent to brand name medications. So in most cases, it's really considered equivalent um, to being on a brand name versus a generic. And there's no real advantage to using a more expensive brand name medication if a generic of the exact same medication exists unless it's a medication where a very, very tight level, like somebody who has a seizure disorder, for example, um, is really needed. So once generics are available, they become more accessible and more affordable, and there should be no difference or advantage between the brand or generic at that point. And what about the insurance coverage? I certainly notice a medication that I'm taking that if I took the brand name, it would be hundreds and hundreds of dollars, whereas when I get the generic, it's you know less than 100. What would you tell us about insurance coverage for these medications? Sure. So insurance companies are trying to figure out what's the most cost-effective route to provide the most medications to the most people. And oftentimes, if that brand name medication is the only one that's available to treat a specific disease state or in a specific way, that medication might be more expensive. Um, And in order for the insurance company to be able to provide that to the patient, it may have to be at a cost um, in order for that company to be able to provide medications more affordably to other patients who are enrolled in the same insurance plan. Um, What we also see is that once generics become available, those costs decrease um, and those barriers from an insurance perspective also go down. So it might be easier for patients to access generic medications than it is for brand medications until that sort of patent expires. There are, um, in some cases, assistance programs that are available to help patients access or pay for those really expensive brand name medicines. Um, Even if some of your listeners may have Medicare Part D, some of those assistance programs are available to folks who have uh, Medicare Part D. So I work in a primary care clinic where I manage a lot of patients who have diabetes, for example, And some of our Medicare Part D patients may not be able to afford some of the injectable, more expensive brand name medications. And so we might be able to have those patients apply for assistance programs to help them access those medications. And Kristen, what about patients, older adults that are getting their medicines by mail order? Is that occurring more often now than the old days when everybody always just went to the drugstore? What would you tell us on that? And Is it a preferable way to get your medications or is it more problematic for this population? 
Insurance programs often incentivize patients to use mail order by including a cost savings for utilizing their mail order pharmacies. And so for some patients, the you know convenience factor of having a home delivery is beneficial if they have access or transportation issues or they're really you know inkling for that that cost savings. Um, all mail order medications are processed and checked by a pharmacist in the same way that they would be checked at a local pharmacy. However, Patients report that sometimes the product arrives late uh, from the delivery uh, and that their local pharmacy may have to provide an emergency supply. They might find that medications might be left out in the harsh conditions of the mailbox. So most medications, for example, should be stored around room temperature. We know that the temperature inside a mailbox in the middle of summer can reach up to 150 degrees. So in some patients, in some medication cases, that may not be ideal. Um, Patients who utilize mail order might also find that they have questions about their medicines and then have to, you know, reach out and contact the pharmacy versus, at, as Emily mentioned earlier, at checkout at a local pharmacy, you might be asked what questions you have or provided information right at the time of picking up that medication. Patients may also find that these mail order medicines come, you know, in 90-day supplies and, you know, the medication gets stopped or changed and then they have this wasteful sort of backup of, of prescription medicines um, that they might not need. And, you know, in addition, mail order pharmacists don't see the patient. They don't see the patient coming in to pick up over-the-counters and supplements the way a local pharmacist could. They don't see how the patient enters the pharmacy. If they have other, you know, things that they're picking up, other symptoms that they're complaining of, they only see the prescription medications that the patient is filling. So what I'm hearing you say, Kristen, is, is that it's even if uh, an older adult is getting their medications by mail, um, for the reasons that you just stated, it's probably a good idea to have a contact at a local pharmacy. Absolutely. The contact at a local pharmacy, uh, you know, ensures that there's an accessible healthcare provider who knows you, um, knows your history, and to whom you can ask questions about medications, supplements, over-the-counters. Um, they can provide you additional emergency supplies if there's issues or delays with a mail order delivery. They can provide advice, answer urgent health questions, medication questions, um, and again, you know, do this in a, a timely manner right on the spot. Good advice here. Well, Emily, I wanted to get back to you about some of the factors that lead to polypharmacy. And one of the thoughts that I had is about maybe either lack of knowledge or information among uh, the physicians that a patient sees. Is this situation likely to lead to, to polypharmacy? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of different variables that can be at play when we're talking about contributing factors. And so I think, you know, as, as Kristen was alluding to, there are challenges in terms of just not knowing what else is happening um, from one place to another and patients not necessarily knowing what information to share um, between providers. So um, I think there are just some disconnects in the system with the way that it's currently uh, set that can be problematic. And so when you don't know what's happening on the other side, let's say um, one provider doesn't know what the, another provider is doing. I oftentimes think about, for example, um, a primary care provider, um, a patient should have a primary care provider, um, and that person may be kind of the hub or uh, connecting other providers. But 
you know, your endocrinologist might be sending that information to the primary care and your cardiologist may be sending that information to primary care, but the cardiologist and the endocrinologist might not be sharing the information with each other. And so what you can find sometimes is that folks will prescribe a second medication in the same class, or they'll prescribe a medication that would interact with another medication, but because they don't have complete information, um, they, they don't realize the, the challenge. Um, there's also potential for folks, uh, providers who maybe aren't familiar with a certain disease or uh, someone has a rare or lesser known condition, um, that can be problematic as well, where folks might not know exactly what to do in that case um, or may need to kind of fill in a gap of time before someone can get a referral. Um, so what you can start to think about is that if you don't know what, what another person is doing, um, you do run the risk of duplicating efforts. Um, and that's probably, that's one place that we would see challenges. Um, but generally also just, I think, if you don't recognize also uh, how a person is taking medications, um, that's another big one. So if we think that, oh, a person's blood pressure is not going down with this one medication, we need to add another, it may be that the person isn't taking the medication, had side effects from it. Um, but if you don't know that information as a provider, you may just prescribe something else as opposed to getting to the root cause, um, which would be the, the non-adherence that's being experienced at home for whatever reason. And is that, uh, Emily, what's known as fragmentation of care? Uh, the fact that there are so many different physicians involved in the, the, the care of the, of the older adult? Yes, I think that's probably the, the, a clean definition of it would be that you're looking at healthcare providers or, or healthcare systems that aren't working well together. Um, so in some cases, you do need multiple cooks in the kitchen, but it can sometimes seem like there's too many if those decisions aren't being made together um, in a cohesive way um, and in a way that's going to benefit the patient you know, from all perspectives. Um, so one, I've, I've read some descriptions of it by other folks who have said that it's basically when a decision is made um, by multiple people when just one unified decision would have been better, right? That you've got multiple people weighing in on something, but not necessarily with complete information. And some of that can be a challenge between what, you know, who's, who's managing what conditions. Um, it can also be a challenge when you think about things like discharge and transitions of care from home to hospital to a long-term care setting. Um, and also the fact that our computer systems don't always talk to each other. So the pharmacy system doesn't talk to the doesn't talk to the clinic physician um, system, which doesn't talk to the hospital system. And so you've got these different computer systems that are basically driving wedges in between care. And so we're relying on fax machines and phone calls um, to do you know really really detailed work. And I'd also add really quickly, Cheryl, um, a great example I have of uh, when I was working at, back up in Boston of a patient who is taking a really dangerous blood thinner and had a primary care provider, a neurologist, and a cardiologist all involved in the patient's care, these specialists in the, the sort of primary care team. And the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. The primary care provider thought that the neurologist was managing the blood thinner. The neurologist thought that the cardiologist was. The cardiologist thought that the primary care provider was. Meanwhile, the patient was stuck in the middle, not knowing sort of who actually had the ball. Um, and it turned out, ultimately, that the patient did not need to be on this dangerous blood thinner the entire time. But because those care providers weren't on the same healthcare system in terms of an electronic medical record and weren't really talking to each other about who claimed ownership over this medication, the patient was stuck taking this medicine that they didn't need for much longer than they probably should have. So it's a great example of exactly what Emily mentioned with that fragmentation of care. 
and thank you for for adding that. I I wanted to uh, address another aspect which I think we hear about so much. It's it, it's really kind of the culture of prescribing. Uh, you see ads every night, especially during the national news with all of these various uh, medications that are, are available and ask your doctor, what are the factors that can lead to this idea of almost a, a pill for every ill? Do you both see that? But we'll start with you, Kristen. Sure. So as patients, you know, we want to be fixed, right? Uh, and as healthcare providers, we want to help or we wouldn't be in healthcare. And the easiest way to give and receive help often ends up being, unfortunately, a medication versus a lifestyle change or an alternative therapy. So it can be really hard for healthcare providers to address lifestyle changes or alternative therapies. And, you know, it's estimated to be an average uh, time visit of 15 minutes with your primary care provider. So it's much easier for folks to be prescribed a medication, unfortunately, and it's difficult to address these lifestyle or alternative therapies. Things like a counselor, a dietitian, physical therapy, when these things might not be covered by a patient's insurance or if they have insurance, it's not accessible to where they might live in, let's say, rural America, um, or if folks don't have resources like time and transportation to access them. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head, Cheryl, with drug company advertising and the role that plays. So I work in a primary care office. I mentioned I often manage diabetes. I can't tell you how often patients come in and ask for a specific medication they've been seeing advertised on TV. And, you know, it's hard, I think, for a healthcare provider to feel like they're denying a patient a medication that they come in asking for, even if that medication might not be ultimately the right one for them. And in addition, you know, drug side effects can often present like a new symptom or condition. And we see this with things like constipation, insomnia, fatigue. You know, if these aren't worked up as a drug side effect and are instead perceived as something new, then more medications can easily be added. You know, and finally, I think as patients, we're sometimes really attached to our medications. And, you know, studies consistently show that patients believe strongly in the necessity of their medicines. And very few of us express concerns about adverse effects that our medications might have. And studies also show that even when we are interested in stopping medicines, that, you know, we as patients may have a hard time deciding which one, which medicine I'd like to part with. And so, you know, all of these factors can contribute to this idea of, you know, what we're talking about today, polypharmacy. And to that point, help our listeners understand what kinds of information should they themselves, or if they have a patient advocate, uh, when they see a, a health professional, what, what should they say? Uh, what kind of information should they provide when this physician prescribes a new medication? Yeah, so good question, Cheryl. I would say that there's information they should provide and information they should ask for. Information that patients and advocates should provide is a list of medications, and that includes supplements and over-the-counters that they're currently taking, and also how they're taking them. If they have any medication allergies, bad reactions, um, you know, studies show that patients, you know, often have side effects and they might not be able to tell their physician. This happens about 25% of the time. Um, you know, tell your healthcare provider if you have cost concerns. Studies show that about 40% of folks with cost-related difficulty taking medicines don't tell their doctor that they have cost concerns. Importantly, 
tell the healthcare provider what your health goals are. What's important to you? Is there any health information that's necessary to know related to your condition? Past medication trials, hesitancies about medicines, concerns or burdens related to medications or healthcare, um, and let them know what other providers or specialists are prevent participating in your healthcare. Similar to when Emily mentioned that sort of fragmentation piece, and. Patients and advocates should ask a bunch of questions whenever new medicines are prescribed, you know, asking what it's for, whether it's going to help someone achieve those personal health goals that they have, what are the risks or benefits of the medicine, are there any alternatives, what are the likely scenarios and degrees of benefit or degrees of risk, how do I take it safely? How long should I take this? Is this a forever medicine, a week-long medicine, you know, a couple months? How do I know if, if it's even working or how well it's working? What should I be looking out for? Are there side effects I should be monitoring for? Do I need any tests? Do I need any follow-up? Do I need to see a specialist? Can any of my other medicines be stopped or reduced to offset the starting of this new medicine? So I really hope that folks come away from, you know, this talk today empowered to share this information and to ask these questions of their healthcare providers. These are really excellent questions, and I, I hope that people write all of these down. And, and thank you for that, Kristen. And Emily, I want to get back to you now about Help us on understanding what is a medication review and why is it important and, and who does this? Who who's participates in this kind of process? The medication review is a process, you'll hear it called a variety of different things. So I'll, I'll put that out there first, that um, medication review is one term that we'll hear. Um, medication therapy management is sometimes used um, in the pharmacy world. You can also hear the term medication reconciliation. Um, that's oftentimes used in the hospital setting. Um, but the idea, generally speaking, would be that in a more formalized way, you would actually review your medications with someone who's trained to do so. So um, my recommendation is generally to, to work with the pharmacist or the, uh, a prescribing provider, so physician and nurse practitioner, PA, whoever it is that you see, um, and you know, to choose someone who you consider maybe a gatekeeper of sorts, um, who would be able to work through your medication list with you. So you would actually want to bring, ideally you would bring all of your medications with you, um, but also a list of them um, so that we can kind of update and arrange as we need to. Um, but bringing all of those medications and then sitting down with someone and just going one by one and getting a better sense of how it is that you're using them, what you're experiencing, um, double checking for drug interactions or potential side effects. Um, as, as Kristen mentioned, you can have folks who will experience a side effect of a medication that is misinterpreted as a new symptom of a disease. And so we can help to kind of identify cases where maybe that's contributing to polypharmacy and we can get rid of other medications. Um, but basically, you know, the goal changes for the person. I would say in some cases it's, I really want a medication list that I can take to every provider and have it be accurate and, and have them, you know, have all the information that you do as my pharmacist. Um, but in other cases, it can be, look, I'm, I'm getting ready to move into an assisted living facility and I need to make sure that my medication orders are exactly correct the way that they need to be so that I get the medications that I need when I, when I relocate. Um, and so it's all of those different variables that we want to work on. Um, also deprescribing, which I think Kristen is going to talk about shortly, but um, you know, getting rid of medications when they're no longer necessary, all of that can be part of the medication review. Um, but generally speaking, what you would leave with is 
um, certainly a medication list, uh, a more formal one with with accurate information, um, and also some some opportunities for for the patient to go back and maybe make changes, but also potentially for other providers to reconsider the way that they're that they're treating a, a given condition depending on the patient's needs. And I would imagine that on the part of the patient that this process that you're describing might also involve the caregiver or a family member, in, especially in the case of, of someone else helping to make sure that the older adult gets, the, uh, gets their medications on time and gets the right ones. But, but on that side, is there also an invitation to have family members or caregivers be a part of this process? Yeah, absolutely. We want anyone who's involved in medication taking to be involved in those in those reviews. Um, and so I think, you know, whoever is managing the medications should be there. Um, but as much as we can involve a patient, we want to do that. Um, and so we want to make sure that even if there's a care provider who is managing medications day to day, the patient also has a say um, in terms of what they're comfortable with, what's working for them. Um, and so we want to be sure, though, that we're thinking about this. My recommendation generally is to do this at least annually, um, but certainly if someone is coming out of the hospital or changing, um, you know, uh, changing providers or changing, um, you know, where they're living, those things, like if they're moving, as I mentioned, from home to an assisted living facility, it should be happening at every change in care. Um, and the other thing that I'll mention that I don't know that we've, we've talked a whole lot about, but we've talked about prescription, OTC, and uh, dietary supplement drugs, but I do wanna also mention that when you're doing a medication review or informing a provider of your medications, um, it's important to recognize that it's not just the medications that we take by mouth that we need to be reporting. It's also anything that you inject, anything you apply, anything you drop into your ear, your eye, um, you know, all of those things count. Um, and so that's oftentimes where we run into issues is that folks will, will bring in all of their pills, but then will we'll not have access to the rest, which can cause problems as well. Um, or benefits, right? It's not all doom and gloom, but uh, we do want to be at least uh, aware of what sorts of risks we're, we're um, taking on. Okay. Well, I wanted to make sure that we did get a definition of deprescribing, since this is uh, the part of the title of, of today's program. So we're going to come back to you, Kristen. Exactly what is deprescribing? What, what's the goal? Sure. So deprescribing is just like it sounds, deprescribing. So the opposite of prescribing. It's really a systematic process of examining the medication list and how those medicines are being administered, as Emily mentioned. It's really conducting that med review to find if there's any medicines where existing or potential harms outweigh existing or potential benefits in a very patient-specific way and thinking about which of those medicines could potentially be stopped or decreased. Um, and what I mean by this sort of patient-specific way is making sure that what is being taken is safe, effective, practical, affordable, and aligned with the patient's best interest. And back to what Emily said at the beginning of the program, aligned with the patient's current biology, right? To make sure that everything is working in the right way for the person who's in front of us. What deprescribing is not, is it's not denying patients medicines they need. It's not giving up on patients. It's really just pruning away again what's not helpful or what's really burdensome. 
And this should ideally be done as routinely as a medication review and should happen with, you know, all of those uh, providers, healthcare specialists that are involved in the patient's care on the same page. And there's a lot of buzz about deprescribing right now in, in patient, provider, research, education, and policy circles. So it's a really great time for patients and providers to initiate the conversation about deprescribing and to undergo one of these medication reviews. Okay. I wanted to also ask you, Kristen, there's something also known as RX websites. What are those and what, what should older adults and our listeners know about them? So there's a whole bunch of prescription websites that can provide uh, unbiased information about medications to patients on the web. Um, some of my favorites are drugs.com. It gets its drug database information from some of the same resources we use in healthcare. It has a great pill identifier tool, a drug interaction checker um, to help people identify if there's something that they need to be speaking with their providers about. And this information can also be brought to a healthcare provider. Um, and it provides really good basic medication information for patients to start thinking about some of these potentially problematic uh, medications that they might be taking. Some other uh, websites that may be of use uh, is uh, one of my favorites, which is healthandaging.org, brought to you by the American Geriatric Society. And that features some educational materials for older adults and caregivers. But very importantly, it has lists of medications that patients may consider avoiding uh, for in terms of older adults and lists of medications that work differently in older adults because, again, of that biology of aging that Emily mentioned at the top of the program. And it also emphasizes some of those alternative remedies and management strategies. So those are some great websites related to sort of prescription medicines, how to identify meds that might be potentially problematic. And I would also say that Health and Aging helps to refer patients to geriatrics healthcare professionals in their area. And that can be sort of taking that next step towards medication reviews and deprescribing. And the RX websites are more specific to medications then, just so I understand that? Sure. Well, they're all resources that have great medication-related information rather than just general health information. The other resource that I'll point uh, listeners to is one that's called PIMSplus.org. And this is a website sponsored in part by the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. And it has specific medication-related information to help patients identify if they're a good candidate for one of the medication reviews that Emily mentioned and helps them identify any medications that might be potentially inappropriate and can help refer them again to someone who might be able to help conduct one of those medication reviews in their area. Okay, and so that, what you just were telling about now is more about polypharmacy and medication reviews? That's correct. Okay, okay. All right, well, any final comments? I would just say that it, the best resource out there is your pharmacist who might be, uh, you know, verifying all of your medications, making sure that you feel comfortable approaching them. They're always approachable, so please do bring them questions and they can help connect you to the providers or resources that might be helpful for you. Okay. And Emily, any final comments? No, I think this is a good month, though, to, to make use of your pharmacist. It's uh, National Pharmacist Month. And so if you want to use that as an icebreaker when you go to talk to your pharmacist about your medication review, that's a great start. I did not know that. So thank you for sharing that information, Emily. I want to thank Dr. Kristen Zimmerman and Dr. Emily Perrin with Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy for joining me today. 
To learn more about Aging Matters, visit our website at agingmattersonline.com where you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content in addition to Aging Matter podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and you can learn about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today, and remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.